You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of the Corridor Media Group's Diversity Straight Up, sponsored by ACT, Align Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. My name is Sarika Bakta, president of Nikea Diversity Consulting. I'm a co-host along with... My name is Anthony Arrington. I'm a managing partner of Top Rank, and uh, we are looking forward to a show today. We are coming live from Jeans out of the Graduate in Iowa City, Iowa, on the Ped Mall, and uh, we're part of this year's EntreFest conference. So, it's good to be in person, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So glad to be here. Well, look, we're about to have a great show today. We're getting ready to get under the hood with uh, with our special guest. So why don't you introduce our guest? Yes. Well, here we have is Rajesh Anandan. He is the co-founder and CEO of Ultranauts, an award-winning quality engineering firm with employees in 30 states across the U.S., 75% of whom are on the autism spectrum. Named a Fast Company world-changing idea, MIT Solve Challenge winner, and interbrand breakthrough brand. Ultranauts is reimagining how a company hires talent, manages teams, and develops careers. For the past two decades, he has focused on social impact, including setting up and running UNICEF Ventures, an incubator for self-sustaining tech for good ventures, mentoring and advising impact entrepreneurs and investors, and lecturing on social entrepreneurship at MIT. Rajesh grew up in Sri Lanka, has worked in Asia, Africa, Europe, and North America. For more than six decades, ACT has advanced its mission of helping people achieve education and workplace success. We exist to fight for fairness in education and create a world where everyone can discover and fulfill their potential. Education has power, a power that can change lives forever. It creates opportunities that lift up individuals and their families, and it sparks societal change that echoes through generations to come. From our grassroots, we have fought the good fight for equity in education, and we remain devoted to helping anyone who struggles to access that power. We are all in to create a world that values and encourages each individual's abilities and potential in a society that is fairer and more equitable. How do you use your energy? Giving back to your community? Fueling your drive to deliver hope for neighbors in need. At Alliant Energy, we're creating more clean, renewable energy every single day to power what matters to you. Because even during the most powerful moments in our lives, we're not thinking about power. We're thinking about a brighter future. Alliant Energy, powering beyond. The phrase, people you can bank on, it kind of embodies our legacy. What I think that means is we care about our clients, we care about our community, and we care for each other. Having been in business for over 20 years and uh, explored all possibilities of financing and you know banking relationships, I have found that the people at Cedar Rapids Bank & Trust are people that you can really bank on. Well, welcome so much to Diversity Straight Up, Rajesh. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Normally what we do is we typically start our show off with a a what's on our mind. Something's on my mind. Uh, Sarah and I are typically thinking about things throughout the week related to diversity, equity, inclusion, or just the world in general. Um, And so we like to just riff about whatever's on our mind. And and, um, really what's been on my mind this week, Sadika and Rajesh, is is our is our is our gun violence uh in this country and, and globally and it's it's been disturbing to see that we can't come together and, and figure this out and we've got kids dying um particularly when i see kids of color looking like me dying it just it's a scary thing and i just it just really really bugs me thinking about those things you know i, I wish that we could find a way around how do how do we can how do we get control of this so it's really been on my mind this week any thoughts from you you know, when we talk about diversity of perspectives and we know that uh, topics can be extremely divisive, we also know that uh, these are thoughts, perspectives yeah. that come into the workplace and it impacts our community as well as in our homes as well. And um, having two children of my own, regardless of you thinking about dropping them off at school, going to a grocery store or going to you know, a faith-based organization, 
I think about is a safe place to go. I think that, um, I also think about the rights that we have as part of the Constitution. Yes. And I know that we don't want to take away rights, but I think that there's a way that we can look at compromises so that we can look at safety for all. And whether that's looking at enhanced background checks, yeah. looking at um, different ages that you can, you know, obtain access to weapons. There's a lot that needs to be discussed. And I want us to um, have those conversations, those hard, challenging conversations. Absolutely. 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 Well, Rajesh, you know, we do open it up if there's any thoughts that our guest executives have on topics that uh, Anthony and I have on our mind. Well, you know, I grew up in Sri Lanka, I'm, um, and I uh, came to the U.S. when I was 16, and then, you know, finished school here, worked here, and then worked in other continents, came back. Um, I grew up in the middle of a civil war, and um, Sri Lanka is known for a lot of things. We have a great cricket team, we have great tea, um, a lot of textile. We also perfected the suicide bomber. So the Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated by a teenage um, Sri Lankan girl with an explosive strapped to her back. And that was in response to um, India having uh, supported a separatist movement that emerged in the north of Sri Lanka, where you had a minority group, the Tamil people, who took up arms to fight for a separate state. And the training camps for the Tamil separatist fighters were in southern India, and they were implicitly sanctioned. And then the Indian government changed its position. And that was seen as a real betrayal by the Tamil people. And the consequence was, unfortunately, a young Sri Lankan girl lost her life in a political act. Um, and uh, I grew up being on both sides of this conflict because my mom is Sinhala from the majority. My dad is Tamil from the minority. And um, I have a Tamil last name. And so in the south of the country where most people are Sinhala, I don't go around shouting out my last name. And then I grew up in the south, so I spoke Sinhala. That's my first language. And so when I used to visit the north, I didn't open my mouth because I didn't want to be seen as a Sinhala person. And so, you know, I think when I moved to the U.S. and I have a nine-year-old, and, and when my wife and I had a child, I was really excited to be somewhere where I didn't need to worry about the risk of random acts of violence. Because one of the things that the Tamil separatists started doing um, was shifting from attacking military installations to random civilian targets because that has a much stronger political impact to drive policy than if violence is isolated and only the military is experiencing it. And so I grew up in Colombo, which is the capital, and there were incidents where, you know, there would be a post office not too many blocks from where I lived that would be bombed. Um, and this kind of thing is just not the world we want for any of our children to grow up in. And um, while I don't have any expertise in what drives policy in this country. What I do know is um, for my nine-year-old to even need to have a conversation about what an active shooter drill is, is not okay. No. That is not the no. world that kids need to be growing up in. You know, even when you put a geo-tracker on a kid because you're afraid for their safety, the message you're sending them is, the world is not safe, you should be afraid, and I need to know exactly where you are at all times. And that is not the kind of world that kids should grow up in. They should grow up in a world where they feel safe to explore and fall down, yeah. <laughs> get back up. <laughs> yeah. um, Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's really all I have to say is, you know, no. um, I don't want to live in a world where a nine-year-old goes to school and needs to remember her active shooter drill. Uh, we appreciate your perspective and you know we, we, we could talk about this all day and we and it, I just think it's it's important that we all continue to use our voice in the spaces our voice and our in our votes to to to, uh, to make our world a better place to make our country so I appreciate you you sharing your perspective on that. Uh, 
Yeah, well, thank you. Last yeah. thing we want to do is become numb to Any of these that. kind of uh, challenges Any and uh, tragedies. Yeah. Well, let's get on with the show. Let's, 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 let's dig under the hood and let's talk about business. Let's talk about Rich Well, no, let's I, get on yes. to what's on our what, guest's mind. What's on our guest's mind, absolutely. What's on our guest's mind? Where, where did your idea to come up with this company come from? I know you talked this morning about starting the company, but, but why? You could have gone to work in Silicon Valley and made your millions. Why, why did you start Ultranauts? Well, first, I'm not sure I could have gone to Silicon Valley and made millions because, <laughs> you know, I studied computer science. I have a couple degrees in computer science from MIT. On paper, that looks like, oh, yeah, I should go to Silicon <laughs> But um, the first job I had after my undergrad was I went to work for Microsoft mm -hmm. to write code as one. Uh, my, this was in 1995, so I'm dating myself here. Uh, and uh, for the members of your audience who are old enough, that was, a, that was a heady days for Microsoft. Windows 95 was a big deal, it had just come out. And um, seemed like that was the thing I should do is, you know, go work for a big software company. And within a week, I knew I did best. I did not want to write code. And I was probably okay at it. I don't think I would have ever been great at it because I didn't like it. I didn't love it. And I think it's important to find things you love that you can really commit to so you can get really good at it so you can make a living at it. Because, right. um, you know, being mediocre is no way, whatever field you're in, that's no way to make a living. Um, that's just a good way to drain the life out of your existence and not be that particularly successful. And so, uh, first, not sure I would have made it in Silicon Valley. I am an engineer by, in my heart, I like to break down complex problems, I think, in systems. Um, but, I also don't uh, think that technology is the answer to everything. And in most cases, technology is just a tool. It's neither good or bad. I know we like to vilify a lot of things these days as causing harm, but it's really about the humans who are designing the systems and the humans who are using these systems. And so coming back to your question, <laughs> um, my co-founder and I met uh, at MIT. We were roommates. We lived in the same house. Um, you know, Jewish kid from uh, New York and a Tamil Singhala kid from Sri Lanka. Um, he, he's an actual engineer and um, has been a serial entrepreneur from after he graduated. I survived for, you know, a few months at Microsoft and then ran back to school because I realized right. this is not what I wanted to do. Um, we had a lot of friends who were just wired differently. And, and this is probably true in engineering or STEM fields in academia. Got a lot of quirky people and that's all, that was it in the 90s. We didn't have these labels like, yeah, you're different. That's all right. That's cool. Like we're friends and we'll watch out for each other. But we also saw how some of our friends who were different really struggled as they were trying to navigate a system, a world that was designed for somebody else and just the waste of human potential because of that. And then um, through a long windy road, I um, met my wife who was a child psychologist and in the early 2000s she was working in a community mental health clinic and she saw a spike of kids coming into her practice who um, were autistic. And she started doing group work with um, with kids outside of just individual therapy and she came home from work one day and said something along the lines I'm gonna paraphrase you know we spend all this time focused on things kids these kids may never be good at social relational skills but but these are important skills for survival but at the same time we spend no time nurturing the things they're amazing at not the therapists not the educators maybe not even the parents and isn't that a shame? And that simple idea of like, what if we stopped focusing on things people weren't good at and penalizing them for it? Penalizing people for being different. What if we could just focus on people's strengths and create and design a system that could just harness those strengths? What could we do? 
I love that. I do too. I um, have a dear family member um, uh, that is on the autism spectrum. So when, uh, just to level set for our listeners, when you think about neurodiversity, it's a philosophy, a movement uh, that really looks at um, embracing brain differences in a way that's you know, viewed as normal rather than being perceived as a deficit. So that would include anything from autism, ADHD, dyslexia, Down syndrome. At the end of the day, people are just wired to think and um, be able to um, problem solve and learn very differently. You know, we always say that a diversity of thought really helps to propel innovation, and neurodiversity is one way to really tap into it. So, Rajesh, I know that when you're thinking about, you know, organizations and workplaces that are really wanting to try to embrace this, can you share with them some of the major, major challenges that you experienced, and more importantly, how did you overcome it to get to a point where more than 75% of your workforce are neurodivergent uh, talent? Sure, and um, and I, I do want to say, it's not just that three quarters of our team is neurodivergent. Um, we have autistic teammates on the, you know, on the leadership team who are running engineering teams in HR. Um, They're enterprise-wide, mm-hmm. which is another. It's across functions. Yes. It's not just, we're exactly. an engineering, quality engineering firm. So we're in a very technical field, but it's not just in technical roles. Uh, even in our very technical organization, it's not just in individual contributor roles. Mm-hmm. It's, people managing teams, leading initiatives. Um, and uh, while the majority of our team is autistic, we have many teammates who are ADHDers, who are dyslexic, who are dyspraxic. We have teammates who are non-speaking. Probably the majority of our team have auditory challenges. And so we just have a lot of different brain types. Um, when my co-founder and I started the company, it was based on a premise that in retrospect is obviously ableist. and. Um, even though with the best of intentions, uh, because our thesis was that we could um, build teams with autistic teammates who had heightened abilities around certain traits that map to the core work to be done. Pattern recognition, systems thinking, logical reasoning. And um, you know, if I'm, if I'm generous, I'll say we didn't know any better, but we should have. We should have done our homework. Um, like with any venture, you should just never build for somebody else. You should either take the time to actually understand the problem, the audience, the context. Um, but of course, as entrepreneurs, we can't just help but dive in. So when we were getting started nine years ago, there weren't really any other models to look at. There were mm-hmm. nonprofit groups that were doing some interesting work but no real commercial endeavor. And our mission was to demonstrate that neurodiversity, having lots of different brain types, um, would be an advantage, a competitive advantage for a business. And the theory of change was simple. Step one, build a business that can compete and win and drive better value for our clients with a neurodiverse team. And to do that, we would need to just reimagine how uh, workplace functions, how teams communicate, how decisions are made. Um, And then step two, take everything we've learned and share it with others to try to shape the broader workplace to be more inclusive so more brain types can contribute and use their strengths and thrive. Um, And so it took us probably a few years before we had enough neurodivergent teammates in the company in roles of influence where we were able to reflect on our mission and call out the obvious flaws of this thesis that success would come from hiring people with heightened abilities. Because, you know, 2% of the population is autistic, 4% of the population are ADHDers, 15% of the population are dyslexic, there's a lot of humans who are neurodivergent. And no one description is going to describe everybody in that group, just like any group. That's one, which is sure, there is evidence that autistic people over-index on certain attributes, like visual pattern recognition or logical reasoning. 
compared to the general population, but that's meaningless when you're looking at one individual. Those sort of mm -hmm. numbers yeah. don't really apply to a human. And we're in the business of working with humans one at a time and forging teams. So the other part of the, the, that intention, which again, while the intention was good, um, the implication was that if you're autistic, in order to deserve a job, you need to be exceptional. Whereas if you're not, you know, you could just be average. While Google may hire the top 1% of engineers, every other company hires the 99%. Mm -hmm. And so if you're autistic, you need to be exceptional just to be accepted. That doesn't seem fair. That's an obvious double standard. And so where we've arrived at is of course, every single person working on our team needs to be serious about the work, committed to our mission, skilled in doing the job. But I'll take a serious, creative, committed professional any day. I don't need exceptional. And that's not to say we don't have teammates who are off the charts sure. brilliant in some ways, but that's not everyone. And that's not our advantage. And that's not a sustainable advantage to rely on the sort of, you know, genius contributors, that's not a way to scale a business because that's not most people, including right. autistic people or ADHDers. Yeah. And that's as much as I feel qualified to comment on my autistic teammates because that's like you know a bunch of dudes sitting around talking about women in the workplace. This is not appropriate. I can talk about what it right. means to create a workplace where all brain types, including my own, <laughs> can thrive and the value we've been able to deliver. Well, thank you thank so you. much yeah. for being able to share um, uh, some of the challenges and what some of the ahas. And as a early entrepreneurial business, you're always gonna pivot based on what you learn. The dive and in, so, right, exactly. absolutely. You know, something I, I learned from you, and, and I, I would love to hear you expand on it. You, you mentioned the way you develop your teams. And I, I heard you say, we can't bias train ourselves out of this space and we can't, have these engagement surveys and just think everything is, is okay. Talk to me about how you got around that way of thinking and how you developed your staff because many organizations come into the space thinking that that's, that's the way we learn. We, 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 we do this training, and but you, you mentioned you do this training, then you go back to your desk and that's life. So tell me how you got around that. Yeah, so okay, let me ask you, well, let's do a little experiment. I want you to think about um, elementary school teacher. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right, describe what the person you thought about. Her name was Mrs. Gerloff. She was great. She had brown hair and glasses. And she loved me. Okay, wow. <laughs> See, mine was a different. Um, <laughs> we're, we're I remember my, Mrs. Gerloff, if you're hi, there, Mrs. hello. Hi, Mrs. Gerloff. You had, you had you, you have a quite good memory impact. of your elementary teacher. My, um, I remember my elementary days not as positive. Um, English was not my primary language, so I was looked upon as, you know, someone that was uh, smart enough because I didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. So I was always taken aside to get additional assistance. And so yep, we that, was a, that. That, was, that was my lens. So yeah. my kindergarten um, experience was nothing <laughs> positive. Maybe that's the reason why I don't remember the teacher's name like you do. Block it out. All right, so let's go with this experiment. All right, well, well, so most people, almost pretty much everyone, will um, have an image of a female teacher. If you walk into an elementary classroom and you see a male teacher as a parent, mm -hmm. uh, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna be taken aback, and then you're probably gonna convince yourself, well, I mean, there's no reason a man can't be a good teacher. But we just have these ingrained biases of what we expect someone to look like, speak like, you know, be, present like, and sitting in a half-day workshop isn't gonna train that out of you. That's just silly. Now, sitting in a half-day workshop to make you aware of those biases. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a starting point. That's not a solution. Right. Because moving from being aware to actually understanding mm -hmm. why is a little bit of a leap. 
moving from understanding to being able to put it into practice is yes. a bigger leap. Moving from being Smart able mind. to put it into <laughs> practice to having it become a habit is an even bigger leap. So just like I could sit in a workshop about uh, you know, how to shoot the perfect three-pointer and know, you know, really understand it, understand the technique. I could probably describe it to you. And if I get on a court, I'm not going to do it. Right. And there's no reason to think that what we're talking about is any different when it comes to making unbiased decisions. You know, if you're on a management team, making good, high-quality decisions is a big part of the job. If you're um, leading any kind of group, making high-quality decisions is a part of the job, and it's a skill that needs to be developed and practiced. And then when you apply the need for that skill of high-quality decisions into the decisions that impact people at work, right? Who gets hired? Mm -hmm. Who gets promoted? Absolutely. That, that's a lot more than sitting in a workshop. And so what we've been able to do at Ultranauts is to look at the system and the context within which these decisions are made, except that humans are just going to make biased decisions, can't train it out of them because we're human. Yes. And design the system, design the process to limit, to minimize that bias. So the easy part is recruiting, like hiring decisions. And most companies still do things that are proven to not work, mm -hmm. right? If you look at a job description, it will have some kind of statement around X years of experience required. There is quite literally zero, well actually 0.03 R-squared correlation, like no correlation no. between a specific number of years of experience doing a job and your ability to perform that job well in the new organization. Right. And there's a whole bunch of obvious reasons for that. You, Absolutely. You know, um, and yet that's the starting point. Well, why not remove it, mm -hmm. right? Or most people love to think that they're great interviewers and they just want to go with the flow and you know, see how it feels and go where the conversation takes you. Well, that's just ripe with bias because a few milliseconds into meeting a person, you've already decided for yourself whether you like this person or not. You can't help it. There's a <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years of evolution behind. You just can't help it. And so the answer is to have structured interviews where you're forced to ask the same questions. That doesn't mean you can't drill down when Correct. you want to. But more importantly, have a scoring rubric before you start the first interview where you're forcing yourself to actually define, well, what is a good answer right. before I meet the person? What is a good answer? How will I score it? And these are all just checks and balances. And of course, the best way to remove bias is to not rely on a conversation, but actually observe work. And so at Ultranauts, we universally use job tests for all roles, for all applicants, not just entry-level roles, not just technical roles, not just neurodivergent applicants, because it's just a more objective way. We have 90% right. retention, and we're hiring people who've never done this thing before, and we're forming teams, we're training people up, and going head-to-head -head with large consulting firms. We unseated IBM at Prudential. We unseated Capgemini at AIG. We work with the likes of Goldman Sachs, Disney, Slack, et cetera. We are the best at what we do. Right. And we've been able to hire people who don't have a resume. So Rajesh, right. well, I was gonna ask, what does your retention rates look like? So we have close to 90% retention. Mm -hmm. It depends on the year, sometimes higher, sometimes yeah. lower. It doesn't, the, the variance is between 85 and 95%. Right. One of the things, you, you, I, I love that you, you mentioned, you, you seem to have perfected the combination of data, because I have a perception about data and how data is used, but human behavior. And you, you, you've mentioned a couple of times that we contextualize, right? So obviously you have all these different personalities, different neurodivergent types working for you, and you have to manage those humans, manage those human behaviors. How do you develop your leaders 
to 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 do that in, in your world because the easy thing is for leaders to say I, I, I can't do this I, I quit you know I can't deal with these people right so how do you train up your leaders to understand all these different personalities and you know maybe Anthony's calling in because he's got an anxiety attack today but um, Jane is okay today but we know we've got this issue with Jane how do you how do you manage all that to stay efficient so I think the um, the question you're asking is you know how do we coach or train or support our leaders and I'll answer a different question is how do we design our systems to allow these cognitively diverse teams to collaborate and function um, so we, we've authored a set of management principles that we mm -hmm. call them to get collectively creating a universal workplace. Mm -hmm. It's applying universal design principles to the system that is work so that everybody can thrive and use their strengths and collaborate with those who are different. And so what that looks like, for example, one of those principles is flexibility is the default. You shouldn't need to ask for it, mm -hmm. it's just the way it is, right? So what does that look like? Um, well, in our case, everybody has to, gets the option to work from home. Um, we've been remote for nine years. When COVID unfolded, nothing changed. Everybody works from home. In a sense, though, if you're the kind of person who wants to go into the office, actually, you don't have the flexibility in our company. But to us, flexibility is the flexibility to design your own workspace in a way that's optimal for you. Mm -hmm. Because our teammates all have different needs in terms of sensory needs um, and physical space, mm -hmm. et cetera. You just can't design a physical office that's gonna work right. for everybody on our team. Um, second, not just where you work, but how much work do you do? So most of our, uh, so 90% of the team are in salaried roles. Income stability, but there's a few table stakes, right? Mm -hmm. Like income stability. Sure, sure. sure. Um, but in our case, salaried roles are not crafted around this mythical notion of an FTE, a full-time equivalent, the 40 or 50 hour mm -hmm. work week. There's actually no evidence that that's optimally productive for humans. Right. Oh, yeah. There's literally none. Right? Yeah. I can agree and with you 150% on that, that one too, yeah. Rajesh. Yeah, and, and so now there's pushback with the four-day work week and all this stuff. But our business model, we're a professional services firm, we bill based on hours work. So hours do actually matter. Um, but for almost all salaried roles, and it's not just at the entry level, you have the choice of what we call a DTE, a desired time equivalent which is, do you want, quote, full-time or three-quarters time or half-time? Salary's prorated, so there's no mm -hmm. cost to the business, but you're no longer prevented from having income stability and a salary just because you can't productively work for a, quote, full work week. Right. So flexibility in that sense. All communications in the company, whether it's an all-hands meeting or a daily stand-up, are multimodal. We have video, audio, chat, transcription. So if you're not speaking, like, quite a few of our engineers are, you could still contribute. Your ideas are not left out. Right. You could drive value, right? If you have auditory processing challenges, not an issue. If you're extremely uncomfortable being on video and it makes you extremely anxious, nobody's forcing you to be there. Because these things don't matter. All we're trying to do is create the context where everyone can contribute fully and drive value. Right. And so as a manager, I don't need to remember oh, how am I gonna work with this person and that person? It's just switched on. It's all flexible, right? Yeah. We have a tool called the Biodex, and this came out of, and a lot of the innovations didn't come from the founders. We just were, you know, uh, able to stay out of the way. Right. <laughs> and allow the team to actually drive a lot of the workplace innovations that we've ended up with. So somebody on the team said, you know, this was a few years ago. I could never figure out how to work with some of the people on my, on my team. Like, everybody's so different. It's just, I just can't do it. I wish humans came with a user manual. <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> yeah, like, wouldn't uh, that be nice? Sounds like parents, right? Yeah, and so. <laughs> Parenting 101. <laughs> that was a really, you know, great insight of like, what, what if we all had a user manual? Right. right. So what if when you joined a team, I could look up the quick start guide? I mean, I start using a, piece of technology, there's a quick start guide, yeah. there's a reference guide, there's a user manual, why not for my teammates? And so there's a bunch of stuff like Myers-Briggs, you know, there are these sort of 
tools you yeah. can use, but they're very theoretical. Mm -hmm. And you know, we needed something a lot more practical. And so out of that simple question emerged what we call a biodex. We've now built it into a Slack bot. We're creating an integration with Microsoft Teams. And it's basically the quick start guide for how to work with me. It's got about 20 fields um, that are grouped into a few categories. And some of them are just basic things that every remote team should know because we're remote. So right. it's like availability is a category, right? And it's not just what hours do you work, but if I ping you, what's your typical response time? Because I can't see if you're at your desk, I can't see if right. you're working, right? Because some people's really, behavior. I, I really like this, Rajesh, I yes. really do. And I what? know that from a time perspective, we were like coming to a you know, crunch time here, but I think that when you say that you, know, you design systems, I still think that you have inclusive leaders such as you who are helping to design these systems right. that create There's that. There's humans behind those. Exactly. Right. And I love the whole individual user index. Right. I mean, I would love if people, you know, ask me versus having other tests that are telling what I'm what about me, right? What, what that I think ask I, me yeah. how I want to be flexible. Yeah. Ask me what my response time is. Then those are what my colleagues are going to know and it's not going to get them frustrated. They know exactly. How do I know you? What I hear you saying is I'm building a company. I'm not, I'm not asking, do you fit with me? Right. I'm saying, all right, what are you good at? And let me build a, an organization that fits around. Well, you sort of, sort right, of, sort right? of, because right? we're, we're a business. Yeah, so it's not what money. are you good yeah. at? Are you good at this thing we do, which is yeah. data There's quality engineering? And then we're just trying to remove all of the nonsense and the <laughs> business corporate BS around <laughs> the uh, work. Corporate BS, make sure you heard that. Uh, yeah, you take care of your people, they will take care of you and the but, profits but, are gonna come. But these come. are just things that prevent people from contributing fully, uh -huh. from not being able to use their strengths, from being able to, right? So it's all just leaving value on the table. And Absolutely. if we can remove those barriers, yeah. then we're able to realize truly the full extent of human potential at the table. And that's how we win. And you know, here's a very simple, simple version of like, how do we create this inclusive? In the biodex, there's a category around feedback. How do you prefer to receive feedback? Because most managers are taught to give critical feedback, for example, in the moment, in a live conversation, sandwiched between positive affirming mm -hmm. comments, mm -hmm. also known as the, the SI, SI, yeah, right. The, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's no evidence that this works, by the way, for most people. There literally isn't. It's just th that kind of thing, everybody knows it doesn't work and you've seen it fail, but there's so many other bigger problems to solve. It's just in our case, if I do that kind of thing with a teammate who has complex PTSD, that could cause harm, so we have to root it out. So yeah. in our case, in our biodex, we have a few fields, including how do you prefer to receive critical feedback, right? Timing, in the moment, end of day, end of week. Delivery, in a live conversation or in writing. Framing, is there a phrase mm -hmm. I could use simply to make this easier for you to hear? So I just single command in Slack, look up your feedback preferences, and actually hopefully deliver it in a way that's effective. Look up that user manual. And then bio <laughs> the biodex, is that what you call yeah. it? Yeah. Yep. Right? Wonderful. Well, I know we got to move on, but I do want to ask, what is one of the myths out there that you can quickly, for, for the time purposes, debunk about hiring you know, talent that is neurodivergent? One of the biggest myths out there that you can debunk. Um, that neurodivergent talent, whether it's autistic talent or talent who are neurodivergent in other ways, are only good at some jobs. So the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, every year they get a whole bunch of conscripts, right? Because it's <laughs> a draft, they don't get to pick who comes in. Every year they get a whole bunch of people who come in, including autistic officers. Um, and a bunch of years ago, around the same time we were getting started, because we, we talked to some of the folks running that um, intel, they, they had a special unit, 9900. They started with um, analyzing aerial photography as the job that they thought autistic analysts would be great at. Mm. And then they realized, well, there's actually no reason autistic officers can't be good at anything. And now, everything from tank repair all the way to cyber warfare have teammates, they're, you know, whatever the military terminology is, sure. um, who are autistic, who are neurodivergent in other ways as well. And so this kind of 
uh, stereotype that autistic people in particular can only do some types of jobs, it's just not true. And we've seen it at Ultronauts on a very small scale. The IDF has proven it at scale. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for that. helping to debunk some myths that are out there. Yes. yes. All right, we're going to go on to uh, one of our, you know, last segments here. Yes. What's on our listeners' mind? Yes. So I wonder what our listeners are thinking right now. So, listeners, continue to submit your comments, questions, and feedback to info at diversitystraightup.com. So, we have a listener question. This is one that we get quite a bit, at least I get when I'm out and about. And we were just walking around today at Entrefest, and we were asking, asking questions. So, this was from today. Somebody had asked, um, what kind of metrics out there around diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement should be just thrown out, thrown out the door? that is just useless, that people are measuring around, that just at the end of the day, isn't showing the ROI. So um, I'm glad that it's Rajesh that needs Me to too. answer that one. So Rajesh, uh, this is coming from an Entrefest attendee here today. What are your thoughts on this question? Well, so first, I have yet to see, outside of Ultronauts, metrics around inclusion. How do you measure inclusion? How mm -hmm. are people measuring inclusion? So I, I just think, I appreciate the question. Um, we need to stop counting things that are countable yes. and start figuring out how to measure things that are important. And so for us, what does that mean? We measure social isolation. We measure loneliness at work because having a connected team drives productivity and performance. And we're also different, as I mentioned, <laughs> and we're virtual, so this is real. Um, we've been measuring it for several years now on any given week. Uh, we have a bot that polls our team at the end of every workday, so we get data points on things like loneliness. Um, 10 to 15% of Ultronauts report feeling lonely at work, depending on the week, compared to over 40% of the US workforce. So even though we're also different, we're a lot more connected, and that does help us perform better as a team. Um, measure psychological safety. Right? So we do it in a couple different ways. We have a monthly, we call it an auto 360. Every project team, we work in project teams, so we maybe have 20, 30 teams working at any given point in time. Um, we want to know the team dynamics on those teams. And so there's no way to know it <laughs> unless you get the data. And so we're measuring things like psychological safety, team cohesion. We have early warning systems around burnout. We you know, ask for perception of workload, pace of work, things like that. Um, and then once a year, we do a external independent audit of psychological safety in the company done by a third-party nonprofit in the same way we do a financial audit. The report goes to the board mm -hmm. because that creates accountability. So if there was one thing I would say is have psych safety audited and published to create accountability as a governance tool right. to create an environment where if you bring people in who are diverse, because we love counting representation, mm. um, and I have strong opinions about that. Me too. <laughs> but let's say you bring people in Me who three. are different. What kind of environment have you created? Right. Right. And how can you create transparency and accountability around that? Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much to our uh, MantraFest yes. attendee that asked that question. And I'm, I'm a firm believer, quit tracking, you know, just activity-based and counting just yep. uh, activities, but really start looking, measuring meaningful quit outcomes, making an impact. Yeah. Quit using those metrics to count and find out what's, what your people think. Indeed. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going to get, we've, in, in the rest of the time, we're going to get on to our next session. Uh, we've got a little surprise that we do here that we have fun and it's called uh we, we call this a diversity thumb ball it's sort of an icebreaker um do we have that ball let's, we do let's get a couple logan of over up. there is going to do a great you know throw so <laughs> get ready so to catch our, i don't know who audience, he's gonna... yes <laughs> oh <laughs> well for our I'll audience keep my day here. job logan apparently i can't catch we, we've got this soccer like <laughs> ball uh rajesh that we play with, and we do this with a lot of our, our, our group uh, facilitation work. Uh, we're very interactive, but this ball has a bunch of just questions and, and scenarios around diversity, and we typically throw this ball to each other, and wherever you catch it, if, wherever your thumb, one or two thumbs, whichever one you choose, <laughs> lands, you just ask that, ask that question and answer it authentically. So All right. I will start. How about it? I will throw to my co-host, Etika. How about Oh, you're going to throw it at me? Right, Are you right? telling me? Oh! <laughs> That was that a major plus. That, that might have been our first <laughs> miss like in three years. Arm, yeah. like, you know, all right. Well, I'm all definitely right. keeping my day job. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. 
how might you personally combat prejudice and discrimination? I've learned to really um, engage in authentic um, dialogue by asking open-ended questions back. I've learned to not assume something because it may be my perception or bias that kicks in. So for me, a way that I've started to address that is one, making sure was that their intent because the impact I was feeling was something else. So I've started to really you know, engage in open dialogue by asking an open-ended question and um, realize that it, their, their intent wasn't that, but the impact I felt. So it was a learning opportunity for both us over the years. It's a great one. I haven't had that in a while. Yeah. All right, that's going to okay. come to you here. See, I'm a lot easier to play <laughs> so with. Two, do I get to pick? Sure, pick, you pick, pick one or the other. Uh, describe a time you experienced prejudice. Uh, gosh, I'm going to pick one. <laughs> Plenty, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, I'll, I'll uh, describe a time that um, the same thing happened. You know, I was with a friend. The same thing happened to us. We experienced it together, but we experienced it very differently. Ah. Um, I was living in South Africa in Johannesburg, and a um, friend of mine, and I moved there from L.A., um, and a friend of mine from L.A. came to visit. And the two of us uh, went to Cape Town to just hang out, and we were out walking around the streets late at night, and we got pulled over by the police. We were just walking, and you know, it was one of these situations where we heard somebody sounding like the police saying, hey, hey, stop, and we're like, oh, somebody's in trouble, and then it was us. And um, you know, the, the, there were a couple cops, they, um, put us against the wall and strip, you know, search, patted us down. And I found the whole thing very amusing. I'm like, what? what is this? this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and then afterwards, my friend, who is black, black American, mm -hmm. who came to South Africa because that was the promised land where this was post-apartheid, and we're living in this amazing time of change, walks down the street and gets pulled over and Aww. put up against the wall by the police. I mean, I'm laughing because I, at the time, right afterwards, I didn't understand why he was so impacted mm -hmm. and upset by what had just happened. I'm like, yeah, some idiots just pulled us over for no reason. And he was like, yeah, but it happened here. It shouldn't have happened here. Right. You know, and I think as we hear about the experiences of others and how people are being impacted, it's just helpful to realize that the same thing happening to you might not have the same impact. Yes. Because Absolutely. your lived experience isn't going to get transposed onto that event yes. in the same way. How are we willing to look at other people's lived experiences? Thanks for sharing that. Good question. All right, my turn, I guess. How do how do your thoughts about diversity differ from your parents? Um, you know, actually my my thoughts are probably quite similar to my parents. Having said that though, I think if I, I'll just use my father as an example, I, I'm probably um, a little more controlled. I think my my dad, my 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 dad grew up uh, in the in the 60s, was coming of age in the 60s, um, was very active in um, the civil rights movement. My uncles uh, were very involved, um, very animated personalities, um, calls it like they see it. I, I probably have a little bit of my dad in me, um, but I think I'm a little calmer. Maybe I guess this. I don't know if that's the right word. I, um, I probably approach things a little bit differently um, with a little bit different uh, approach than my parents. Uh, so it's probably as close as I can get. So. Well, Good thank stuff. you all for sharing. So what advice, this is our last um, question yes. for you, what advice would you give to our listeners who are, trying, who are trying to enhance their journey when it comes to equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement? So in less than about 40 seconds here, what advice would you give that's going to really help them in a meaningful way to really enhance their journey? Uh, two things. One, 
remove requirements for years of work experience from your job descriptions. Immediately. It's useless. You, if you don't know better questions to ask or more specific requirements to insert, then you don't know what it takes to do the job and you should start there. The second thing is actually measure well-being. There are free polling bots that you could use in Slack or Teams. I mean, it's not hard to do. Just start measuring. You may not get it right at first. You may not know what to do with the results. But step one is start measuring things that you think are important that relate to the well-being of your team. Rajesh, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining uh, Diversity Straight Up here at EntreFest 2022. We appreciate your insights in terms of uh, neurodiversity and how to really be able to enhance some inclusive workplace cultures. And um, it was a very impactful episode, at least for me. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. We really, we, we could have gone on all day and we, we would love to, to talk with you again, but appreciate your time. Uh, we want to thank our, our sponsors again. Thank our, thank our audience. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do this. And we, we appreciate you all. So, so thank you all. We want to thank our sponsors, ACT, Alliant Energy, and then Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. We, we really appreciate that. So, Well, enjoy the rest of EntreFest, everyone. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, for your time. joining in here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Diversity straight up, huh? Keeping it real. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a shout out again to our sponsors, ACT, Alliant Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. The show is produced by LAS Media Group. A special thanks to our listeners, as without you, we wouldn't be here. So please continue to help us grow subscriber base by sharing our show with others, liking, commenting, etc. Love this episode of Diversity Straight Up? Then head over to the most popular podcast and audio platforms to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. And as we say on our show, diversity straight up. Keeping it real.